So we talked last time about these specific things that were happening in the Corinthian church. And Paul says, do you expect me to praise you for this? In verse 22, he says, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. He said, you've, you've carried on the doctrine that I've taught you so very well, but in this regard, you are not doing that. So he can't praise them for their behavior. They're failing to observe the teachings about the Lord's Supper that he had passed on to them. That's how it begins verse 23. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. So they know the proper way, but they had not carried on this teaching, which is a tragedy. Paul had not concocted the Lord's Supper himself. He didn't come up with this. He had just passed on. He says here what he received from the Lord. So he didn't specify exactly how he received it, but he's saying here, I'm just giving you what Jesus instituted and I want you to continue these things that Jesus instituted. Now, it is interesting to think about what does Paul mean here when he says, for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Now, we understand in his letters that he was being given it by the Holy Spirit and then he was writing it down and passing it along there. But in this instance, he says it a little bit in a different way there as if he had been directly given something, a, a practice, an order, a way, and then he had taught this to them as well. Now, we, we have some, some proof text to help us understand maybe what Paul meant there. Hold your spot and go with me to Galatians chapter 1. Every time I turn through this portion of the scriptures, I always remember I was taught as a child, Georgia Electric Power Company. That was the that would have been Dixon Electric around here. It was Georgia Electric where we were. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Georgia Electric Power Company. <laughs> Galatians one gives us some interesting information about Paul. So you know Paul. Who was he before he was saved? Saul. What was he doing when God saved him? Persecuting the church. Where was he when God saved him? He's on the road to Damascus to persecute the church. He loses his sight and then he is taken where? Yeah, Damascus to whose house? Ananias. Yeah, he's taken to Ananias' house, which had to be hard for those guys they, they did what God had instructed them to do or they felt led to do of the Lord. But this was a guy who would have you killed for the faith and now he's saying he's part of the faith. You know, it's kind of one of those, yeah, sure you are. But then where does he go from there and how does he become the apostle Paul? Now that's information that a lot of people maybe don't understand or have never been taught or don't know. Well, Galatians gives us some information there directly from Paul's own mouth. Look at verse 15. He says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb to call, and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. All right, so where did Paul not get his training for ministry? Humans. He says, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia. So he said, I didn't get it from flesh and blood and I didn't get it from the church in Jerusalem. He said, I went into Arabia. What do you know about Arabia? What do you think of when you think Arabia? Desert. Desert. That's what I think about. 
Maybe it was different then. Maybe it was something else. But I think God took him off into a desert place, a wilderness. Well, who else has God ever done this for? Jesus. Who else? Moses. John the Baptist. Seems to be a pretty normal thing. Now, when I was in Bible college, they taught us that uh, MDev takes three and a half years. And that's probably about how long Paul was in Arabia. (laughs) Maybe so. What do you think, Brother Archer? Is that, that about right? Was he in Arabia getting his Masters of Divinity? It's very possible, isn't it? Uh, and then it says in verse 17, and then he returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But of the other apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Now you can go back to Corinthians. My point in showing you that is, as Paul says here, for I've received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. It's very possible that while he's in the Arabian desert being trained, that Jesus is supernaturally teaching him things he needs to know there. The, the less supernatural way to take this is he was out in the, the desert um, kind of learning to depend upon the Lord and not his own background and education and his upbringing. Uh, that would be similar to Jesus's time there in the wilderness. He was tempted, but he was fasting and he was being uh, taken care of through that time supernaturally. But then when Paul returned, he goes up to Jerusalem And maybe there, once he's in Jerusalem, after this time in the desert, then the early church, the the leaders there instruct him. This is what we do. We baptize and do the Lord's table. And this is how we do it there. What's one other theory you could probably come up with in your mind of how Paul knew this? How to do, what's the Lord's Supper? Well, if he had gotten it handed down to him, either in writing or verbally, hey, Paul, you weren't there, but this is what happened at the Last Supper. Right, So maybe it wasn't as direct as here's how to do it in the church, but here's what has happened and Jesus instituted this. Either way, and I don't know that we could ever nail down exactly what Paul means here other than he's passing along to them what he's received of God. However he received it isn't actually relevant, but it is interesting for you and I to be able to think through. Well, he gives a rebuke in verse 22. After the rebuke, he begins to review for those in Corinth exactly how to observe the Lord's Supper. And he tells them that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he'd break it and said, take heed, this is my body. And, and you go on down through the reading there. And, and he's just saying to the Corinthian church, here's what you're doing. And it's, it's not well. Here's what you're supposed to be doing. And it doesn't have to be that complicated. For the sake of filling out the hour, I'm going to make it very complicated. No, for the sake of us understanding exactly what these elements are and what they are talking about, I want to spend some time just in these next three verses here. The instructions are very straightforward. So much so that it's almost as if Paul is giving some abbreviated instruction here. I don't think that is the case. I think he's just making goal, the goal of the ordinance simplicity. Should it be hard to take the Lord's table? Should it be impossible to take the Lord's table? Of course not. Warren Wiersbe tells a great story in his commentary in this section here of uh, one Sunday at the, probably at the Moody Church, him serving the Lord's table and he just noticed this person over on this side that just was just broken up and, and never did come forward and didn't take the Lord's table and then the service was dismissed and still kind of broken up over it. And he went to him and said, what's, what's going on? And through some things that they said, realized really, quickly that they felt that they needed to take the Lord's table and should take the Lord's table, but certainly didn't feel worthy to take the Lord's table. 
And his instruction was simply, come and dine. This is the table for sinners. Well, that's a wonderful, wonderful story from Warren Wiersbe. Now we understand that to mean repentant sinners. Should one find themselves in a manner of open sin and not repenting, well, they should abstain from the Lord's table. And that'll come in the verses that we still have for us. But I think he's keeping it simple here. He's trying to correct the Corinthian situation. What he's passing down even to us now is here's the instruction. This is how the Lord Jesus himself observed this table on the night that he was betrayed. It accomplishes two things for us now. It reiterates how serious God is that we simply read and obey his word in our practice. How how do we know what the Lord's table should be? How do we know what we should do and not do in regards to the Lord's table? Well, there's the word and we should read and obey the word. This also allows us to hold Paul's teaching as trustworthy. Where did he get this information? He just uses scripture for scripture. He says to the Corinthian church. Now we understand Paul got a lot of things supernaturally inspired by the Holy Spirit. But in this instance, if you're trying to decide, is Paul really getting things from the Holy Spirit? Or is he just coming up with this and telling us that he is? Well, here's one instance of being able to prove, no, this is, this is scripture. Why? Because it just uses other scripture. He laid out exactly what Jesus had done at the Last Supper with his disciples and gave that as the ordinance here to the early church. So wonderful, wonderful teaching for you and I. We, we need to keep the word at the forefront. We need to use scripture. We need to read and obey scripture. Paul's instruction then is that he took bread. He says, the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he'd break it. Now, to say he took bread, he, he's saying there he, he picked it up. The term bread here can also be translated as loaf. The, the Greek word is A-R-T-O-S, artos. It means bread in, in a loaf. It doesn't mean uh, the little, I don't know what you even call what we use. What are those things called? Crackers? Wafers? Those are good words for it, yeah. Um, that's certainly not the, the understanding for what Paul is talking about here. I'm going to get to it in a minute why it's okay the way we do it. I'm not, I'm way too much of a germaphobe to get into the, I'm going to hold a, a loaf of bread in my hands and break it apart and it's, you all got to eat what I just touched. I'm not in. I've seen that done one time. Yeah, absolutely. And sharing the cup, like, whoo. But in that regard, you really got to trust the Lord, right? <laughs> I'll explain in a moment more on that. But I do want you to understand the, the, the actual meaning of what Paul is given here. So Jesus took the loaf. He gave thanks. Now, I, I got to thinking through, what, what is he giving thanks for? He's Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. Well, surely he's giving thanks. Think last supper. He's there with his disciples. He's serving them. And as a part of this ending this supper, he is saying to them, he breaks this bread and he says, take, eat. This is my body. What is he giving thanks for? The physical provision, maybe, yes. But he's doing more here. So I think the thanks that he offers as a part of this ordinance is conveying doctrine. It's conveying the the importance of what is happening here. Let me read you Calvin. Calvin said, The giving of thanks has a reference to something higher. For Christ gives thanks to the Father for His mercy toward the human race. The benefit of redemption. 
And he invites us by his example to raise up our minds as often as we approach the sacred table to an acknowledgement of boundless love of God toward us and to have our minds kindled up to true gratitude. I think that's exactly right. Jesus is not simply saying, thank you for this bread. I think he's saying, thank you for what I'm exemplifying through the breaking of this bread and what you are about to do for sinners. Now, that's a wonderful thought as you come the first Sunday of the month to the Lord's table here at Harpeth is we give thanks. We ask the blessing over this meal, do we not? And why do we do this? Because we are also thanking God for the provision, but mostly for the provision that he made spiritually. Through Jesus Christ's sacrifice, you and I have been made friends with God, though we were enemies. Our sins have been forgiven. There's been an atonement. He then said three things to his disciples about the symbolism of the bread. First, he says, this is my body. So he took the loaf. He gave thanks. He broke it and said, take eat, this is my body. Now, that's an expression that has been the source of debate throughout much of church history. In fact, I've got a printout. If any of you want it after church, I'll print it out for you. It's a good some good church history all in one page. I'm going to read some to you tonight from a different source, but uh, I was thinking the teens, Brother Preston has been teaching you guys about the reformers. Prior to Miss Dana getting sick, he just taught you about Zwingli, right? Has he taught you about Luther yet? Yeah, a little bit about Luther. And then Calvin would be in that mix there. R.C. Sproul wrote out a nice, just kind of a one-page essay there on these different views of what I'm about to talk about tonight. So if you want to copy that, let me know after church. I can email it to you or print it out for you. But there are basically four views that have come in church history about what Jesus is talking about here when he says, take, eat, this is my body. Now, we live in a modern society where we would say, oh, surely he doesn't mean the actual physical body because we're not cannibals, right? We, we, would, we would kind of scare away from that point of view. But if you lived in a day and age where things were thought of a little bit differently, then that tradition would might appeal to you a little more. In fact, the Roman Catholic tradition has interpreted this passage in that literal fashion, arguing that the bread and the wine actually changed their physical substances to become the body and the blood of Christ. Now, what do we, what do we call that view? Transubstantiation. But you have the trans right there. It transforms. And so then in taking the body and the blood of Christ, what have we actually done then? We've kind of consumed some atonement. And as long as we keep on consuming some atonement, well, then we'll be all right. Is that problematic to you? Very problematic because is that grace or works? Works. And that, that lines up with a lot of things, Roman Catholic though, and it, it's pretty normal that that would be their view because the, the, the whole thing is based around the priest and the confessional and the organization of the church. Now we have an organized church here, but your hope is not in this and your hope is not in me. Aren't you glad you don't have to worry about me to get to heaven? Well, I'm, I'm a poor lot in that regard. No, it's you and Jesus. You gather with us for worship because of your relationship with Jesus, but it's not because you've attended this worship together that you have that relationship with Jesus. It's much more freeing. And so this would be, the first view that I would call problematic is Jesus says, take eat, this is my body. He is not saying you actually have to 
in some transformative way actually consume a piece of me to be able to be with me. That's not it. Then there's the Lutheran tradition. The Lutheran tradition, does anybody know the word? It's not transubstantiation. Consubstantiation, all right? Luther did not take, he, he came away from the Catholic Church. He, he, he would have figured out a different way no matter what. But what we would say about Luther's views, he didn't go far enough, right? He contended that Christ's body and blood are present in, with, and under the bread and the wine, but that the substances of the bread and the wine do not change. So we, we wouldn't go that far either. Calvin said that Christ himself is spiritually present in a mysterious way but not that his physical body and blood are somehow present. That gets closer to where we'd find ourselves. In fact, in this room, there may be some of you that's your actual feeling on things. Then other groups have argued that the elements of the Lord's Supper are symbols that encourage a focus on Christ's blood and body. And that would be our view, that this is a memorial and that these things are simply symbols. Now, we wouldn't separate from you if you said, like Calvin that Christ is spiritually present, because certainly we understand that to be the case. How do we know Christ is spiritually present when we take the Lord's table? Is it the crackers? The wafers? Is it the juice? No. What is it? What? I missed it. I'm sorry. Okay, because he's all present. That, that's, that's one. You said our hearts. What about our hearts? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Christ said, I'm going away, but I'm going to send, basically said, I'm going to send myself back. I'm going to send you another. That'll be the Holy Spirit. So we would say, well, of course, Christ is spiritually present. There's one other element that's a part of that worship ceremony that we would say for sure makes him spiritually present. Okay, that magnifies, right? There's something else. John 1. In the beginning was the... Word. So we have Christ in the Word. So if we're using the Word, which we do, when we take the Lord's table, well, certainly we would say Christ is present there. But to do it in Calvin's words, which is very unique for Calvin, given his takes on other things, that he's present in a mysterious way still gets you over to sort of that Christian mysticism we don't, don't quite know. Calvin probably slapped me for calling him a Christian mystic. So I'm not trying to say that about him here, but we wouldn't, I, I personally won't go all the way to his view and I don't want you to misunderstand when we take the Lord's table that that's it. We simply are doing as we've been instructed. There is some spiritualness to it and we get to more of that here in just a moment. But of these four views, ours would be that these are symbolic elements that cause us to focus on what Christ did for us and what he's yet to do. All right, if you want lots more church history on that, I can give you a one-page printout, and then there's lots more after that. So he says, this is my body. And then he says, which is broken for you. Now, those are problematic wordings. Somebody tell me why that's problematic wording. Was, was Christ's body broken? Did any bone break in his body? No, in fact, it was prophesied in Exodus Exodus talked about um, the, the, one of the sacrifices, don't break a bone in it, right? Symbolically pointing us toward Christ. In the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 34. Let me see if I wrote it down. Psalm 34, 20. There's a prophecy of the Messiah that says not, a bone, not one of his bones will be broken. 
So for some people, this kind of becomes like a, like a, like a head-on collision. Like, well, what is, which is right? Was Paul right <laughs> that his body was broken? Was Jesus right? Were the Old Testament prophets right? We know for Jesus to be the Christ, he has to fulfill these Old Testament prophecies. Every jot and tittle, right? It can't be most of them and maybe we got one of them wrong. So we need a proper understanding of what is being said there. Most of your Bibles probably don't even read that way. What does somebody else say here? Yeah, this is my takey. This is my body, which is for you. I don't particularly love going that light on the translation. What I like is, which is given for you in death. Sound very wordy, <laughs> but 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 you get the idea. He, he, broken is to die. So the word that we would we would take here and say, this is my body broken for you, is simply saying it's going to die. You. It doesn't mean that a bone was broken. Now, it was customary for the host to break the bread for their guests. John chapter 6, Mark chapter number 6 tell us the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And we read in that as he prays and he takes the loaves and breaks it. And then the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. So we don't read into the actual breaking of the loaves here that somehow or another Paul's portraying Christ's body being broken. Um, Because we know from these other passages. In fact, John chapter number 19, verse 33 through 36, factually record to us that none of his body was broken in the crucifixion. I think it was a kind of a unique thing that it didn't happen. You you can probably get your head going around the crucifixion story. The soldiers came by. What were they going to do? They're going to break their legs to hurry up and speed up the death. Because without the legs, they couldn't push up to get oxygen, so they would just suffocate quicker. Because why? Why do they want to do this in a hurry? Uh, yeah. The, the religious people of the day said, we got to hurry this thing along so we can worship God. That, that's something, isn't it? Let's hurry up and kill God so we can worship our God. Is what they were doing there. Yes, sir, Brother Homer. Amazing how people justify certain actions through tradition. Yes, it is. It's saddening. So John records for us there. They didn't do that for Jesus because he had already given up the ghost. So what is Christ saying here? He's saying, my body is given in death for you. It's a substitute. Meaning, broken meaning that he would die. So I would take this as, this is my body given in death for you. The third thing he said there was this doing remembrance of me. So the Lord's Supper was ordained as an event when God's people were to remember death and resurrection of Christ. The last meal that he shared with the apostles was set within the context of his betrayal, his arrest, and his eventual death. So he institutes this observance and now ordinance during this time of going to, to, to fulfill this gospel work. So it's a, it's a unique thing. The other thing we want to point out is he did this during the Passover. So the Passover was a a regularly kept feast to commemorate the Exodus from Egypt. You can read about that in Exodus chapter number 12, verses 14 down through 27. You get a pretty good reading of exactly what would have happened during the Passover. There's some wonderful, wonderful symbolism here in how Christ laid this thing out during that Passover feast. He tells his disciples to perform this new ritual in his own remembrance. In doing this, he makes a very bold statement. We know that he's heading toward the fulfillment of the old covenant. 
And now he is instituting a new covenant. He says this is the New Testament, verse number 5, 25. This cup is the New Testament. What's another word for testimony? This covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So on this night of his arrest and then his eventual death, he fulfills the old covenant rite, the old covenant feast, the Passover feast. And when they had supped, he said, when they had finished that feast, he kept it, he fulfilled it. And then he said, he broke the bread. He said, take and eat. This is my body. Drink, this is my blood. This is the new covenant blood. I'm going to shed blood to bring in a new covenant for you, which is just, it's a wonderful thing to think about. I don't know that had we been there then, our minds could have wrapped around exactly what's going on, but we're blessed to have lived in the time since the mystery's been revealed, right? And we can look back and say, wow, they were sitting there as Jesus said, this is what I'm about to go do. And then after I've done this, you keep this feast going. Not the Passover, but the Lord's table as a, to commemorate, just like you did the Passover, that this is the covenant, the blood covenant that I've made with you all. It's a wonderful thought. I'll read to you from Thomas Schreiner. He says, Remembrance is not merely mental recall, but involves the total person and reaches back to the Old Testament where Israel was to remember the Passover. When believers celebrate Jesus' death and at the same time discriminate against the poor and enjoy a feast themselves, they are not remembering Jesus' death even if they use the proper words about Jesus's death. Good note there on what they were doing, what Paul was trying to point out to them they shouldn't be doing. Now in verse 25, he gets more into the cup. So verse 24, he he takes the bread, he breaks it, he gives thanks. He says, take ye, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now there's a procedural note, I think, given to us by Paul here. Um, I don't know that it's procedurally significant in the physical, but the initial order of the events physically here carried a great spiritual significance. That was a lot of words. I don't know that I can communicate well what I was trying to say to you there. After the, after the supper, he took the cup. So Paul, looking back to Jesus' actions, reviews this instituting of a new covenant. He would shed blood on the cross to seal the covenant. Prior to this, he makes the arrangement and then instructs the people to keep on carrying it out for how long? Until his return. So on the night that Paul is referencing, so Paul is here writing to the Corinthians. He's referencing back this last night Jesus had with his apostles here. He does this, we said, after keeping the Passover observance. So he's ringing in the new while bringing out the old. It makes us think of what we do at a new year there. But I think Paul points out here when he says, after the same manner also, and then brings in this new covenant in my blood, he wants them to see God's deliverance. For Jesus' followers then, just as you've regularly been remembering that you were delivered from Egypt in the same way, after the same manner, he says here, you'll be remembering that you've been delivered from sin. It's a wonderful thought. Just as you did minister the, the loaf, after the same manner, he says, do likewise with the cup. So the physical instance is understood. 
just as you did with the, the loaf, do with the cup. But in the spiritual sense, I think we can carry into this just as you did with the Passover, do with the Lord's table. It's a remembrance of your deliverance. Now, you could take this so far to say as just as there's a loaf and there must be one loaf broken up and then one cup shared. You could, you could take what Paul is saying here and make a strong point. You could even say, see, they were doing it all wrong. They'd overcomplicated. They'd gotten the elements crazy. And Paul's just trying to bring it back and say, just like Jesus took a loaf and broke it and he took a cup. And, and like I, would, I think Methodists probably would carry out the Lord's table in this way still to this day. They would break a loaf and then the, the minister will hold a cup and they'll come by and you pull off a piece of the loaf, you dip it in the cup and you take it and then you go round and round. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I, I want to make the case that we're not wrong in the way that we're doing this here. You could even go so far as to say, given our situation, that our communion stewards, the, the ladies who set all the elements up for us before the Lord's table, um, that they're doing that. They're, they're dividing. They're, they're dividing the cup. They're dividing the loaf. And I think some of them, even before they will finish with that, will kneel and pray and ask the Lord to bless what, they've, what they're doing here and what it's for. I don't think that's wrong either. But the significance should never become simply on those things. The whole point of the Lord's table is to have the significance on Christ. And so we've got to, whatever we do or don't do, and why we do it and why we, we don't do it, we've got to make sure that we keep the significance on Christ. This cup, um, wine, the Bible talks about it there. We, we can be careful with that one as well. Certainly that would have been the element used in Jesus' day. For, if for no other reason to make sure that what was being consumed was purified as often their water was not. In our day, why would we say it would be wrong? Well, I'm going to answer you. Don't, don't answer. I don't want to hear your answers. I'm going to give you the reason. It would be wrong in our day for us to serve wine communally because how many of you have been here tonight are under 21? Raise your hand if you're not 21 yet. Yeah. So it would be illegal. I, I don't want to be a, a, an illegal bartender up here serving that out. Now, there are churches who will use actual wine, and I'm not saying that we should call them into the... Who, who is the police over this? There's a certain kind of police. Some, the DEA or somebody, you know. I'm not saying that's the case. And if other congregations decide to do it this way. But in our instance, in our understanding of what this is, would it even matter if it was just Kool-Aid? Shouldn't matter, should it? I mean, if, it was, if, if times got hard and we just had to put water in the cups or, or whatever it is, I think as long as we understand the purpose, then the element is, is not as significant there. But there's a lot of churches that I think are missing the point. They're adamant. Well, if the kids aren't supposed to have wine, then they just shouldn't take the Lord's table because the Bible says wine, so it needs to, to be wine. And, and, and I don't mind so much that someone wants to use Wine is the element. What I mind so much there is they put so much focus on the element, which is taking focus off of Christ. And the same way with the bread and, and all of these things. It didn't occur to me till just probably like 2020 um, that some weren't able to take the Lord's table because of allergies. And I said, well, my goodness, we can fix that. And so we, we started purchasing the gluten-free ones and you know, we, we don't want to take away from or add to this observance in any way for any function. 
All right, so this cup was a new covenant in his blood. Keep the main point here. I like Alistair Begg says, keep the main things, the main things, and the plain things, the plain things, right? That's exactly what we need to do here. This, this cup, this wine represents the new covenant in Jesus' blood. His sacrificial death paid the debt for sin. His death made it possible for the people to enjoy forgiveness and new life in him. Like what he said about the bread, Jesus exhorted the disciples, drink the cup in remembrance of me. The main purpose of the Lord's table is to draw the participants' attention to the centrality of Christ's work on their behalf. The importance of this pattern for Paul is evident from the fact that he repeated it three times. Do this in remembrance of me. Whenever the church participates in the Lord's Supper, Christians proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what he says in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. So there's a thanks. There's bread broken. There's juice sipped. All of this is symbolizing how we received a new covenant. We do this to remember, and then we do this to look forward. So we look back. We look at the present. We look to the, the future every single time we take the Lord's table. There's also an evangelistic gospel note to be made here. The, the word is to show. You, you do show the Lord's death till he come there in verse number 26. The, the Greek word is K-A-T-A-N-G-E-L-L-O. I wanted to say J-E-L-L-O when I was reading that earlier. Katangelo, I believe, is the, the southern version of pronouncing that. It means proclaim. You do show the Lord's death till he come. You proclaim. It occurs many times in the New Testament describing the ministry of the church to the unbelieving world. So this is the prophetic announcement to those outside the church that Christ is the only way of salvation. Now, I like that. And I like that it's there. But I would also conclude like in, in our particular instance, um, more than that even, because we don't particularly arrange things for there to be unbelievers in here while we're taking the Lord's table. We don't, we don't mind it, and we give them instructions. If you're not a believer, if you're not baptized in a part of the church, then abstain, and, and we understand that you're abstaining. It's for your best and our best as well. But there again, is the point of the Lord's table evangelism? No, it's not. The point of the Lord's table is confirmation. Confirmation for the church themselves. This is a remembrance. So until he comes, Schreiner says the Lord's Supper then is an eschatological in that it anticipates Jesus' coming, looking forward to the arrival of the kingdom of God, whose coming has been secured by Jesus' death. So this is Paul's instruction. He says, what are you doing? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God? Do you, do you try to shame the poor? He says, I can't praise you in the way you've been acting. So I'm gonna just remind you of that which I've received from the Lord that I passed on to you. Just as Jesus did on the night of his death, this do you as well. Give thanks, take the loaf, break it, eat it, remembering that Jesus' body was broken. It was given in death for you. Take the cup, drink it, remembering that, that blood was shed. Jesus' blood was shed for this new covenant that you now fellowship under.
Do this as a remembrance until the Lord return. So not only do we remember that he did this for us, but that he's going to return. He went away, but he said he would come back. So this is the Lord's table. Now, from there, just take verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread, drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So we'll get into that more next time and finish out the chapter.